So everyone's found 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Let's read together. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we've fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So you'll notice here in this reading this morning that Paul takes a different turn from what we're looking at last week. Last week, Paul's concern to us in verses 1 through 5 was the ministry of the false teachers. And we looked at the source of their heresy and the specifics of their heresy as well. In verse 6 through 16, uh, Paul switches gears from the false teachers' ministry and turns his attention to Timothy's in specific. And he begins to remind Timothy of the qualities that were going to be necessary to bring restoration to the church in Ephesus. And in doing so, he would be a good and faithful servant to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul ultimately knew that Timothy's role was never meant to be permanent. And, but he recognized that um, he was going to put elders in place to eventually restore the church. But in order for this to happen, Paul also knew that Timothy needed to be a model a model to the church in both speech and action. So today's sermon is a little bit tricky in that uh, the, 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 the passage is really directed to Timothy specifically. And so I know uh, the temptation too is to make the, the, uh, the application strictly to pastoral leadership in churches. Now while this is true, and I wouldn't deny this is a focus of the sermon, this is a heads up to all spiritual leaders, I do want to also speak to you in a way that applies to you. Um, I don't want you just to hear the message and think, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. This is only for someone like Andrew. I do believe that God has something to tell all of us. And so I'm going to do my best to preach this as an application sermon to the entire church and not just to someone like me. I may have to bounce back and forth, however, between the points of maybe when it's specifically set up for someone who's in ministry versus someone who's more uh, like a, a congregant member. But what I'm going to do differently too is that uh, normally I put the lessons at the end of the sermon. Uh, this week, each point I make will be the lesson. So I'll give you the lessons during the sermon and I will summarize them at the end. So if you miss them during the sermon, no worry, I'll give you them at the end as well. But really the whole sermon is built around Paul's opening statement in verse 6. He says, in pointing out these things to be the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the issue here is him being a good servant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word for good is also the word choice or excellent. So there's things that Timothy is to do in verses 6 through 16, even though we're only doing verses 6 to 10 this week. There's things he's to do that will make sure that he's a good or excellent or choice servant of the Lord. And so there's a bunch of characteristics in these verses that prove this to be so. And so I'm going to just look at three qualities. 
three of the qualities and what it entails to be a faithful servant. Hence the, hence the, uh, the title, Serving Christ, Serving Christ with Excellence. So the first thing we want to notice here in terms of uh, how we serve Christ with excellence is found in verse 6. And it's the idea here that faithful servants or excellent servants are going to be willing to warn fellow believers about error. They're going to, or another way of saying it is they're going to warn fellow believers when their beliefs are in error, when they're falling into error. Or, yeah. We pick this up in verse 6. In the first line, he says, "In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good and faith, a good servant of Christ Jesus." Now, what things is he referring to? Remember, in verse three, that Paul reminded, had just reminded the church there of the error of the false teachers. These false teachers were promoting and participating in an ascetic lifestyle, meaning they were denying themselves of pleasure and claiming it to be an act of godliness. So they desired themselves the pleasure of marriage and certain foods, and they believed this was a path to holiness or purity or a right standing with God. Now, it was teaching like this that stationed Timothy in Ephesus in the first place. Remember, in our very first sermon in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to put a stop to false doctrine. He was there to correct error. So Paul's reminding Timothy here that if he is, goes through this process and corrects the error in the church he is, and confronts it, he is going to be a choice servant of the Lord, an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. Now that's an important lesson for us as well, church. Because when we see a fellow believer heading down a dangerous path, it's important for us to warn them. It's important for us to warn them. Now, there's a way we're to do it. We're to do it with gentleness, and we're to do it with respect, but we're still to warn them. And now the context of this whole chapter would make sense. Why? Remember in verse 1, uh, last week, so some have fallen away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So there are some things in the church that we can believe that put us in error that can, can lead us away from faith. Some things may not, but some things may have the potential to do so. And it starts slowly and builds up. Uh, doesn't, you know, it can get off track pretty quickly. Or sorry, it, yeah, it can start slow, but get off track um, down, the, down the road. So again, it's important for us to, to warn when people are in error in their beliefs. Now, I'm guessing many of you are like me that... Even though we know that's what we're supposed to do, and we're commanded to do this, it's still a daunting task and becomes somewhat uncomfortable. I mean, for me personally, even though uh, both as a friend and as, as your pastor, I don't like conflict. I don't like it. It's not my favorite place to be. And I can be just like you. I can fear the, the potential for fallout. I can fear the potential for rejection. And uh, the relationships that I have with many of you are deep, and they're and they're or they're growing, and I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that relationship. And often there's this hidden fear inside that pointing out error in someone's beliefs can increase those chances, especially depending on the nature of the topic and who it is you're talking to in terms of their past hurts and so on. 
And so this is important though, that we're still to go through with it and put our feelings aside and the fear of those things in order to serve the Lord. We're a good and faithful servant if we still walk through those things. The second thing I found daunting, and I don't know about you, is the, there are a lot of beliefs uh, both within and without the church that are, that are contradictory to the Christian beliefs. And sometimes you feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed as to how much you feel you need to know and either to even recognize error, never mind point it out. But I was given some really good advice years ago. And many of you know Lauren Schultz. And, um, uh, you know, in my early years as a Christian, he was basically my, my father. He was my, my spiritual father. And he had a tremendous influence in shaping my life as a Christian. But Lawrence used to serve in the uh, RCMP, and uh, one of his jobs was to, uh, he was trained in, was to recognize counterfeit money. Recognize counterfeit money. So he set me up one time in the Bible study. He said, Dex, uh, how do you think we studied counterfeit money? And I said, I'm guessing they put a bunch of counterfeit money out on the table and had you memorize what counterfeit money looked like. And he's like, no, actually, they didn't. We never saw a dime or a, a dollar of counterfeit money. What we did is we only studied the truth. We only studied the true currency. And when counterfeit money came across our table, we knew exactly when it was counterfeit. And then he turned to me and said, that's how you deal with error in ministry as well, Dex. You want to be, you want to be like a strong Christian? You just need to know the truth of the gospel message and the doctrines of the church. And when something is an error, you will recognize it right away. Well, this is, I love that illustration. I love that illustration. How you deal with error is to study truth. You don't have to know everything about everything that's false. You just have to know what is true. <laughs> now, what I love about this is this is exactly Timothy's or Paul's charge to Timothy in six, verse 6 as well. Notice what he says after he says you need to point out these things. He says you need to be nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Paul says the backbone of your ministry, Timothy, is the that of the gospel message. It's a training that you began with your grandmother Lois, uh, your mother Eunice, and it's, it ended with me. I was your main mentor, and I was taught by Jesus Christ. So you are to rely on the gospel and point out, when you point out these things to the brethren in terms of the error, it's the gospel in which you've been nourished on that is going to be the backbone to your ministry. You judge the error by knowing the truth. Now there's an important principle there for all of us. If you and I are going to be effective servants in the church and amongst the Christian community, and even out in the world in terms of a witness, we need to be rooted in and trained in the scriptures. Trained in the scriptures. That word nourish there is a bit misleading. That word nourish in Greek means to be trained in, to be reared in. That's the foundation in which we approach error. So we're not, we don't have to worry so much about uh, other beliefs and other faiths and so on. We just have to know our own. Now, this is going to require a priority, a priority from us. I mean, Timothy didn't arrive at his maturity in the Lord or his position as Paul's right-hand man because he was lazy in terms of his commitment to the Scriptures. He would have dedicated and given up a large portion of his life to study the Word and become more effective in the truth of the Gospel so he could serve the Lord. 
Church, this is what you and I need to be doing. We need to be learning and giving a huge portion of our life over to the Scriptures in order to be effective servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be a prod and an encouraging word to you. The second thing that um, uh, requires us to be a good servant of the Lord is found in verse 7. Verse 7, we're to reject any influence of teaching that does not lead to godliness. We're to reject any influence of teaching that does not lead to godliness. Let me read this to you. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now there's two things, two phrases we need to understand to make sense of this verse and this charge. First is, what is he talking about when he says worldly fables fit for old women? And second, what does he mean by disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? So let's tackle the first phrase. Let me just say, by him referring here to having nothing to do with fables fit for old women, he was not making a slant against older women. (laughs) Paul didn't have a beef with older women. He actually held them in high regard. In Titus chapter 2, Um, He said to them, let older women teach younger women in terms of how to love their husbands and so on. So he put them in a high position of authority in terms of teaching other other girls. At the same time, in chapter 5, right after these verses, in verse 2, he says, he appeals to older women as mothers. He appeals to older women as mothers in chapter 5, verse 2. And he uses that in in an endearing, complimentary way. So this idea of having nothing to do with worldly fables fit for older women is not a derogatory statement. All commentators agree that this is really a cultural euphemism or another way of talking about wives' tales. In fact, the the NIV translates translates it that way. The the NIV says, have nothing to do with godless myths and wives' tales. And when I looked up the phrase older women, believe it or not, the the, the Greek word was silly and absurd. So have nothing to do with silly or absurd wives' tales. That's the, that's the context of this verse. Now, although Paul gives us no examples of what these myths were, I wish he did, but he doesn't, um, we do know two things about these wives' tales that give us a gist as to what was going on in the church. The first comes from the phrase worldly. Worldly. This word means to be irreverent or unholy. But what the, one of the key definitions there in it is what is open and accessible to all. So the word worldly is what is open and accessible to all that's unholy or irreligious. So these were clearly fables or sayings or slogans that were known within the Ephesian culture they were, but, and were widely accepted. Now to be widely accepted, I'm going to suggest, uh, meant that they had to be appealing in some way. If a myth creeps up into the church, if it, has, if it makes uh, somewhat no sense or has no attraction, it gets easily rejected. But it has to appeal to be somewhat attractive in order for you to embrace it. This is why, again, like Satan, we talked about his schemes last week. He's deceptive and he masquerades as an angel of light. He's deceptive and makes things look attractive at first. So we know that these these were sayings that were open and accessible to all that were known within the culture. Second, we know that these myths did not promote a life of godliness. These myths did not result in a life of godliness. 
Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He contrasts what God wants versus what these myths were accomplishing. Now, godliness in 1 Timothy has to do with one's devotion to Christ, but primarily in reference to one's behavior and how one conducts himself as a believer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, it's kind of funny because Roy mentioned this in his prayer this morning. He talked about praying for our leaders. Let, listen to this. He says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving made behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, now watch this, so that we may, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. So the context of godliness in terms of the pastoral epistles is primarily our devotion in our lives in terms of how we live that life out. It's our character, our conduct. Now when we put this all together then with the idea of worldly myths, these wives' tales, and this, um, this context of what godliness means, we can get a, a sense of what these myths were doing within the church. These were teachings that were known in the world at that time, which were open and accessible to all, that had made their way into the church, yet contradicted God's word as they had nothing to do with promoting godliness. That was the, that's what these myths were doing. And Paul's instruction was to Timothy and, he is, and, ours to, and to you and me is, you stay away from that type of teaching. Now again, I wish Paul gave us some examples of what they were, but we don't have any. We don't have any examples. But I do think... Um, uh, that there's an application for us, though, because there are some things in this world that are popular, slogans and things that exist that do circulate amongst Christians that can cause complications and cause people to go down crazy paths that could even lead us away from God. I'll give you an example. Here's a common fable or myth in our culture that makes its way into the church all the time. You need to follow your heart. You need to follow your heart. And so what happens is when the people in the church are faced with financial decisions or marriage decisions or parenting decisions, whatever it may be, they often follow their heart and get themselves into all sorts of trouble because Jeremiah 17.9 says, and I could put you all on mute and I know many of you could quote it, the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? You get yourself in trouble. Because the heart wants what the heart wants, but God has a different desire for your heart in many instances. How about another one? I believe that there's a, only one person out there, a soulmate. And I have to find my soulmate in order to uh, have a happy marriage. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 39 says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. <laughs> only in the Lord. Th this person has lost their spouse. And, the, and he says, you're free to marry whoever you like as long as they're a believer. Now, of course, there's going to be wisdom in who you choose, but God gives the freedom. There wasn't just one man for one woman in God's economy. But could you imagine the trouble it would cause if within the church that was going around and this person was waiting for that one soulmate and they never met that soulmate, they'd never get married. Imagine the troubles that could cause depending on their, on their desires and their background. Here's another one. 
Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I would curious what the friends of the woman in Judges 19 thought about this when they watched her get violently abused and get killed because of the abuse. The, she was so violently abused that she lost her life. I wonder what her friends would say if in the church they said, well, that, everything happens for a reason. How would you explain the violent abuse of that woman who eventually died? God, when he watches that, is absolutely hor horrified horrified by actions like that. He's not in favor of actions like that. Now he can use things like that in terms of like bringing healing and restoration, but he's not the cause of something like that. Satan, that's, that's his job to create hor horrific tragedies like this. This is important because if everything happens for a reason, how do you explain to someone in the church when they lose the lot, they lose um, one of their loved ones in a car accident on the Deerfoot Trail. If you say everything happens for a reason, you're saying God, like, that God like took your son or your husband or your daughter, whoever it may be, for a reason. I mean, it's just it's absolutely uh, devastating if if uh, we get into that type of language. Now, I do I do agree there are things that do happen for a reason, and God is involved in many things. But when it comes to things like this, uh, like, you know, these violent tragedies, this is just the, the sadness of living in this world. All these things don't lead to a path of godliness, but they're fables and myths and popular sayings that creep their way in their church, and they can potentially lead people away from the Lord. So instead of following myths that don't promote devotion to Christ and lead to one's character, notice what we're to do instead. Paul says you're to discipline yourself for the, uh, for the purpose of godliness. Now this word discipline is an athletic metaphor. An athletic metaphor that means to train or exercise. It's where we get the word gymnasium from in our modern language. Now this is great imagery because when you think of training, you think of like blood, sweat and tears, like vigorous effort. And he's saying this, you are to avoid, like the plague, godless myths that don't result in godliness, but you put vigorous training and effort into pursuing a life that's fully devoted to the Lord. The same type of effort that goes into training for the Olympics or for uh, that marathon you want to run or whatever it may be, you give that same devotion to pursuing a life fully to the Lord. And I like what uh, William Mounts says about this verse. He says, I'll just move my, my marker here. He says, This is not a self-centered struggle of the individual for his own moral and religious perfection, but the training necessary for the unhindered pursuit of God's purposes. Again, this is not a self-centered struggle of the individual for his own moral and religious perfection, but the training necessary for the unhindered pursuit of God's purposes. A couple of things we learn about godliness here. First of all, if we're to train for it, and it's something that we are to pursue, that means that godliness is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time event. It's not a single momentary action that occurs to you. It's a process. It happens over time. It's something that you can pursue and to grow in. So God doesn't 
you know, uh, unscrew your head and uh, open it up and put godliness like right into your brain and say, now you've fully matured. You might have the, the, the promise of forgiveness and might have the, the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit saying that you're a son or daughter of His, but there's still a lot of maturity to go. Maturity is something that still can be pursued and needs to be trained for. What this means then, church, is choices. What this means is that you're going to be faced with choices. You're going to have the choice to go God's way or not. You're going to pursue the path of godliness or you're not. So in the in marriage, there's God's way. There's a way to pursue godliness and to, to perfect your character in the area of marriage. And there's a way that's not. You have a choice to make. Are you going to train yourself? Are you going to go under the vigorous effort to serve the Lord fully in your role as a husband or a wife? Or are you going to go your own way? In the area of parenting, are you going to go the way of the Lord? And you're going to strain and, and have vigorous training and, and go through blood, sweat, and tears in order to raise your children in the Lord's way? Or you're not. In the area of finances and things like tithing and generosity and, all sort, and going into debt and all these types of things, are you going to strain and make every effort and go into vigorous training to honor Him with your life or not? When it comes to being wronged, are you going to strain and, and go through vigorous training to forgive so that no seeds of anger or bitterness come into your life or not? And you get the point. There's just area and category, life after life after life, in terms of examples that are, are giving us choices. Choices. We have to train like an athlete, like an Olympic athlete, for the purpose of godliness. And this is why the athletic metaphor is so appropriate, because it takes an incredible dedication and personal sacrifice in order to serve the Lord in these ways. That's why Jesus said about the Christian life in Luke 9.23, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves once a year. Nope. Daily. Daily. Take up his cross and follow me. It's a daily decision. It's a daily exercise. It's daily training. We are to devote ourselves to the pursuit of godliness. That is the goal of the Christian life. That is what will make us a good servant of Jesus Christ. The question that we all have before us today then is, where have we um, put more emphasis at this point? Where have we put more of our emphasis? And for Christ's sake, Will we make the change? Will we make the change and pursue Him fully? Will we exercise and train our lives to be devoted to Him in the fullness? Now, Paul reminds us that if we do so, there are tremendous benefits to this. In verses 7, he says this, uh, On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. What I like here, church, is that Paul doesn't say that bodily discipline here or physical exercise is of no value, of no profit. He says it's of little profit. So you would agree, and I would agree, and I'm sure Paul would agree with us, that there are important benefits and things that are profitable to us by eating well, um, you know, by getting lots of sleep and trying to pursue physical fitness and so on. 
it can lead to a higher quality of life and even add years to our life. It's just that in comparison to the lasting value of pursuing godliness, it pales in comparison. There's no comparison, both in its extent and its duration. What do I mean by extent? Well, in terms of the extent, pursuing a, a life of exercise for the physical body and taking care of one's physical health is only good for the body. It has no impact on the soul. It has no impact on the soul. It's only good for the body. And in terms of duration, it's only for this lifetime. Taking care of yourself here is only for the here and now. There's no impact on the life to come. Because when you're in, the, in glory, you're going to get a new body anyway. <laughs> and God's going to give you a completely different one than you have here now. It's going to be a resurrected one. One that he describes as imperishable. And we know that life, you know, we know that by experience that in pursuing the physical body does profit a little. I mean, it doesn't matter how many push-ups you do, how many kilometers you can run, how many bananas you can eat, uh, you know, how many visits to the natural path you take. You're not going to get away from the inevitable. All of us are going to eventually pass away. We're all decaying. Uh, Roy said it last week in his, uh, it was either in, a, his, in his prayer or in the, in the testimony time. He said, you know, the thing about it is that the death rate is one per person. The death rate's one per person. That's a good way of saying it. That's exactly why Paul says the, the bodily discipline's only of little profit. It doesn't matter how much we take care of ourselves. We can't avoid that. We can't avoid that. When we all came into the world needing feeding and changed, and we're going to go out of the world needing feeding and changed. That's just the reality of life. Yet even though we know it's temporal, society as a whole and even many believers have made this their focus of their energy and their time. They're training. They're training for something that's temporal and has no lasting value. And Paul is telling us to get our minds thinking like a good servant of Jesus Christ. See, focusing on, on godliness has got two promises, two benefits. It's not only profitable for this lifetime, it's profitable for the next. So what is, how is it profitable, profitable for this time to pursue a life of godliness, one devoted fully to Jesus Christ? Well, there's tremendous blessings in this lifetime that come from following the Lord. Tremendous blessings. In the areas of marriage, there's tremendous blessings. In the area of family relationships and friendships, there's blessings from going His way. Financially, there's, there's blessings from going His way. In terms of the amount of joy and peace we experience, there's, 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 there may be times of hardship, but there's still joy and peace in the midst of it that comes from going His way. How bitter we are and how much anger we resent can be can be completely dealt with if we go His way. There's huge benefits to how we experience the Lord in terms of the temporal blessings. But we also know there's the eternal blessing as well, which, he really, which is what he's really driving at here. The eternal blessing, of course, is that one day, one day we'll be re reunited with Jesus Christ and we get to experience Him for ourselves and be in His presence. Really, the lasting value is one of eternal life, the promise of being with God and in His kingdom. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the day with that embrace where the Lord like sees me running to him and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And finally, finally, what does a good servant of Jesus Christ pursue? A person who is a good servant of the Lord seeks to work hard in pursuing a life of godliness, knowing the nature of who our hope lies in. Knowing the nature of who our hope lies in. Let's pick this up in verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, in this context, remember that uh, the striving and laboring that Paul is talking about uh, and Timothy is that they've been appointed as as, uh, ministers to the gospel message. They've been sent out as missionaries to disciple and evangelize the world. And so the working and striving that they're pursuing is that calling of the ministry life. That'd be the same calling in which I'm I'm functioning in now in my own life. But the reason, look, look at the reason that they strive so hard. It's because of um, knowing the nature of who their hope lies in. They have fixed their hope on a living God. On a living God. To fix their hope on a living God means that they believed that they were going to face this God one day. He wasn't a dead God, a one of stone like idols. He was one that was alive. And they strove and they fought to labor hard because they knew that their hope ultimately relied on meeting him one day. This was an eternal focus, an eternal focus. They were going to meet their creator one day. And so they were going to work hard now, knowing they're going to face their maker in the future. That was the defining, the defining feature by which they were working so hard and were willing to labor because it was knowing they were going to meet God one day that dictated their outcome of their life here and now. I never forget, uh, Rabbi Zechariah said it this way. He said, you know, when he talks to people, he said, how people live out their life now, or how people determine the world, the life's going to end, dictates how they live now. How people determine how the world's going to end and what happens in the afterlife determines how they live now. And that's what really he's saying here. We strive and labor because we fixed our hope in the living God. I know I'm going to meet a living God one day. I'm going to stand before him. So therefore, I strive and labor in this lifetime. Paul says it really well in 1 Corinthians 9.24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What an incredible testimony of the reason why he works so hard. Again, that's that that whole that whole paragraph could be summarized that his hope is fixed on the living God. But he also worked hard for another reason, and they kind of go hand in hand. It's because of who he believed God to be. He says here, he is the savior of all men, especially of believers. How do we reconcile this? Because it seems kind of like a strange comment. He's a savior of all men, especially believers. Well, He's a savior of all men in terms of what I call he's the potential savior. 
versus he's the savior of believers, meaning he's the actual savior. So the potential savior versus actual savior. What do I mean by this? Well, when Christ went to the cross, he died for all of us because we've all sinned against the Lord. So he came to die for our sins. He came to atone for our sins. So in that sense, he's a savior of all men because he's made it possible that if we receive Jesus Christ in our lives by surrendering our lives to him, surrendering our free will and confessing our sins, that we can be forgiven. So the potential for forgiveness in a relationship with God exists based on the nature of the cross. But we don't receive that forgiveness unless we exercise our will to surrender our lives to him. So he doesn't, he doesn't force this forgiveness upon us. He allows us to choose whether we want to love him back and accept him for what he did for us. So it's the potential in that the relationship, the cross was for everyone, but we have to choose whether we want to receive his forgiveness or not and be in relationship with him. So it's a universal offer, but he's a savior, especially believers, because it's believers who have actually done that. They've actually exercised their free will and put their trust in Christ. They have actually surrendered their life to Christ. They've confessed their sin and have devoted lives to him. And so in that sense, he is a savior of all men and especially that of believers. There's much more that could be said, but I feel like I've said enough to create dialogue and to make us think. But I just want to reiterate this, though, that if, you know, the whole purpose of this passage is to remind us of what it is to be a good and faithful servant, a choice servant, an excellent servant. And we need to pursue these things in terms of our love for the Lord. I heard it once said by a pastor, a godly life is the best advertisement for Christianity. <laughs> a godly life is the best advertisement for Christianity. And I think he that's well said. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. You want to restore this church? You want to get evangelism out into the world again from like you know make Ephesus a heartbeat of uh, make the church in Ephesus the heartbeat of the community? You want to get things right in the church? You pursue godliness. Make everything focused around the center of the Word of God. You correct error when you see fellow believers going astray. You pursue a life of godliness yourself, and you be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will restore this church. So here we go. These are the three lessons again. A, God, a faithful choice servant, a good servant, will be willing to warn fellow believers when their beliefs are in error. Two, they will reject any influence of teaching that does not lead to godliness. And three, seeks to work hard in pursuing a life of godliness, knowing the nature of who our hope lies in. And again, much more we can, can be said, but let's have a time of discussion.